Let me ask you to open up to Romans chapter 10. To Romans chapter 10. And as you turn there, let me begin this morning with an illustration from football. In football, there are many players on the field, but there are very few of them that actually get to touch the football on a regular basis. Uh, The center hikes the ball. The quarterback chooses whether to pass the ball to a receiver or to hand the ball to a runner. But most of the offensive linemen and most of the defensive players very seldom get to place their hands on the football in the course of a game. And so it's often a very exciting part of a game when something goes wrong for the offense and a defensive player gets to carry the ball. Uh, It means that either the ball was intercepted or the ball was fumbled. And it can be a lot of fun watching the defensive players trying to get somewhere with the ball. Well, one of the most famous or perhaps infamous plays in professional football history took place on October 25th, 1964 in a game between the Minnesota Vikings and the San Francisco 49ers. The 49ers had the ball, but they fumbled it. And Vikings defensive end Jim Marshall picked up the ball. With his heart pumping... And full of excitement, this defensive player ran with all of his might to the end zone. It turned out to be a 66-yard run. And somehow this defensive end made it all the way to the goal line with the ball without being tackled. After crossing the line, Marshall, full of excitement, threw the football off the field and began to celebrate. Only then did a teammate run to him and explain the bad news. He had run the wrong way. Rather than scoring a touchdown for his team, he had given the other team a safety, two points and the ball. Uh, Marshall's run is considered one of the most embarrassing plays in all of professional football history. There is a lesson there for us. It's a lesson reflected in our passage this morning. And the lesson is this. Passion is not enough. Zeal is not enough. You can try your very hardest. And you can give everything that you have. But if your zeal is not in accordance with knowledge, it can all be in vain. If your passion is misdirected, if your efforts are misguided, you can actually do harm rather than good. This is what Paul is saying in these opening verses of chapter 10 about his fellow Israelites. He loves them. He longs for their salvation. But he sees that they are stumbling over the gospel. They are stumbling over Christ. He says that they are zealous for God, but in all the wrong ways. Rather than coming to God in humble faith and receiving the righteousness He gives as a gift of free grace, they are trying to establish a righteousness of their own, 
a self-righteousness to earn God's favor. And so their passion is real, but their passion is misdirected. They're running hard, but they're running the wrong way. So let's read these first four verses of chapter 10 and listen as Paul explains this to us. So Romans 10, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, last Sunday, we hit hard at the end of our sermon on verse 1. And we heard the call for us to imitate the Apostle Paul in praying for the lost. Our heart's desire and our constant prayer to God should be for the lost in our lives and for their salvation. There is no greater act of love that we can perform for unbelievers in our lives than to be persistently pleading with God to save them. This morning, I want us to unpack this issue of zeal and knowledge. What is the role of zeal in the Christian life? And more significant in this passage, what is the role of knowledge? And then next Sunday, or next time we're here, we're going to come back to these Four verses one more time to focus especially on Paul's statement in verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What is Paul saying here about God's law and how should we as Christians view the law of God? And so that's our plan. The outline for our sermon this morning is based on four simple questions. One of the best ways to get at a text is to ask it questions. And so that's what we're doing this morning. Okay? So here we go. Question one. Was zeal Israel's problem? Was zeal Israel's problem? You see, some might be tempted to look at what Paul says in verse two and say, Aha! There's the problem Israel was too zealous. Israel had too much passion. If Israel had been more stoic, had they not been so caught up in feeling and emotion, they would have been better off. This is the kind of reaction we might have when we look at how much emotionalism we see in Christ churches today. Certainly, there are many people today caught up in an emotional Christianity where the Christian life is the endless pursuit of another experience. Uh, Christians trying to get high on Jesus, and they bounce from worship experience to worship experience. They bounce from conference to conference. They're, They're always pursuing a feeling. And when the feeling is there... They believe that they are close to God. 
And when the feeling is gone, they believe that God is far away. For far too many, Christianity is all about feeling. But as those great theologians of the 70s, the rock band Boston said, Christianity is more than a feeling. It's about more than just passion. It's about more than just zeal and emotion. In fact, one of the most striking things about verse 2 is that Paul says the Israelites had a zeal for God and yet were unsaved. Do you see that? He says, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God and yet he's longing that they would be saved. One of the the most striking things about verse 2 is that Paul is saying it is possible to have a, a great passion for God and yet not know God and yet not be one of his children. So when we see people who think that they are Christians just because they're amped up for God Uh, because they are more than just a fan of Jesus, uh, because they have passion, we want to remind them, and rightly so, emotion alone is not enough. You can have all the passion for God in the world and still be lost. And that needs to be said. But we also must be on guard, because there is a ditch on the other side of that road. Our temptation might be to respond to this error by swinging the pendulum too far the other way. It is true that zeal for God is not enough. But it is also true that zeal was not Israel's problem. In other words, Paul is not saying that Israel's zeal is the reason they're unsaved. And we need to be careful that we don't make zeal a bad thing. Dear friends, if you don't have real love for God beating in your chest, you don't know him. There is a place for passion in the Christian life. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Love is certainly more than a feeling, but love certainly includes feeling. Imagine for a moment that you have a spouse who says to you, I love you. I just have no feelings for you. Would you like that kind of love? Does that sound like the kind of love you would want? Of course not. And it's not the kind of love that God calls us to either. The kind of love that God calls us to must have some emotion to it. It it must have some zeal. Jesus told the church in Laodicea that because they were neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, he would vomit them out of his mouth. And listen to this strong word from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You see, in the mind of the Apostle, you can't be a true Christian And not have love for Jesus beating in your chest. Israel had zeal. But zeal was not their problem. It was right for them to have a passion. It was right for them to be zealous for God. So then question two. Well then what was Israel's problem? What was Israel's problem? And Paul tells us. 
He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, Israel's problem was ignorance. Israel's problem was that their zeal was a misguided zeal. It was an uninformed zeal. Their facts were wrong. And so their passion was misdirected. Mount Hermon, make sure we hear this clearly. When our passion for God is uninformed, it can become incredibly dangerous. The Puritan Stephen Charnock said, Nothing is so great an enemy to true Christianity as ignorant zeal. Why? Well, Thomas Manton said it's like fire in a fireplace. When the fire is in the fireplace and it has its boundaries, it, it, then it can be extremely beneficial. It warms the home. But if the fire is lit loose, if it has no boundaries, if it's not kept in its place, it destroys everything. And so when we have uninformed, misguided zeal, it can burn things up. It can take you in bad directions. I stink at bowling. Confession time. I stink at bowling. And as a teenager, I remember going bowling one time and concentrating really hard because I wanted to figure this bowling thing out and I had never been good at it. I had all the zeal you could ask for. I was concentrating as hard as anybody could concentrate on figuring out how to bowl well. And I went in and I took the step and I let the ball go and it hopped over my lane and into somebody else's lane and that's what happens with misguided zeal. The, all the concentration and passion was there, but it went in the wrong direction and it did more harm than good. Now, by the way, I think Paul sees himself as the number one example of this. I think this is why at the beginning of verse 2, Paul says that he bears witness to this. Because before he was saved, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And his misguided zeal for God led him to hunt down Christians. Paul's passion for God led him to hate those who preached the gospel of grace. His passion for God led him to imprison those who named the name of Jesus. And so Paul remembered what it was like when in his own life there was zeal for God, but it had gone amok and it was creating problems. So now, let's go deeper. Question three. What kind of ignorance was this? What kind of ignorance is Paul talking about in this passage? And several things to see here. Number one, this was not an ignorance due to lack of teaching. Right? This was not an ignorance due to Israel not having the resources to help them know what they needed to know. Israel had the Old Testament scriptures. Israel had the heroes of the faith set before them in Old Testament passages. In fact, the book of Romans has been absolutely full of Paul quoting Old Testament passages to teach the gospel of grace through faith in Christ. And Israel has these very same scriptures. So the problem was not a scarcity of teaching. So then why was Israel ignorant about the gospel of grace. Why were they continuing to try and direct their passion 
towards becoming righteous in their own efforts rather than looking to God in humble faith. What was the nature of their ignorance? Well, it was a willful ignorance. We see this in verse 3, a willful ignorance. Paul says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, part of the issue here is pride. Friends, did you know that pride can cloud the way you see things? Did you know that in your pride you can make yourself ignorant? We've all been there, haven't we? Everybody else can see something, but we can't see it because we're so full of ourselves in the moment, right? It's amazing how different the Bible can be for a person who comes to it in pride and self-assurance and for a person who comes to it in humble brokenness and in need. The humble heart reads the Old Testament and learns that God is a forgiving God, an atoning God, a life-giving God, a saving God. The arrogant comes to the Old Testament and sees a moral code to be lived up to in order to establish one's own righteousness in one's own way. The broken person comes to the Scriptures and finds healing. But those who believe themselves to be righteous already completely miss it. Jesus said that He came to save the sinners, not the righteous. And in the same way, the Old Testament Scriptures remained a closed unsaving book to those who approached it in self-righteousness. But to those dear remnant of Jews who came to it knowing their sinfulness before God, the pages of the Old Testament opened up and were a golden path to heaven, teaching them the way of salvation through humble faith. So this was a willful ignorance, or we might say a prideful ignorance, or an arrogant ignorance. But then second, we have to say this was also a satanic ignorance. A satanic ignorance. Now what do I mean by that? Well, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay, So turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're in Romans, so just turn over 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I think you'll find this helpful. I think we need to be reminded what Paul said in Ephesians, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So maybe you have somebody that you've been witnessing to, and for some reason, when that person reads the Bible, it's like they're reading a completely different book than you're reading. Sometimes you you might scratch your head and say, but don't you see it? Don't you get it? And and they're reading a passage that when you read that passage, it affects your heart and and it it, it feeds your mind and you love that passage of Scripture. And they read the same passage and it means nothing to them. Why? Why can the Bible be right in front of people and yet they still remain ignorant of its glorious gospel message? Well, 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12, tells us. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day... 
When they read the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So think about that. Paul says that there is a veil and that this veil lies over the hearts of those who have not been humbled by the Spirit and brought to the Lord. So we think about a veil maybe on a wedding dress, right? The veil covers the face. The face is hidden. Well, Paul says that there is a veil over human minds and human hearts so that they can't see through the veil to see and understand the gospel message as it's found in the Old Testament. The veil is over the heart, so the glory of the gospel message doesn't hit home. And therefore, the mind is hardened. The mind is not open to what the heart finds dull. And so he says there's this veil that even when you're reading the scriptures with someone, they don't see it. Now, where does this veil come from? We'll look down a few verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so now we understand, Paul says spiritual forces are at work to keep unbelievers ignorant. This is a satanic ignorance that keeps people from seeing the light of the gospel. It doesn't mean that they can't repeat gospel facts. There are many unbelievers who can tell you the basics of the gospel. This is where we go wrong with children sometimes. We simply get children to repeat certain facts about the gospel. We get them to repeat a prayer and then sometimes we say, oh, they're saved. When in fact their their eyes and their heart may still be completely veiled to the gospel. What Paul saw as he looked at his own past life. What Paul saw as he looked at his unbelieving kin. Was that there's this passion for God. But this passion for God was being misguided because of this satanic veil. That kept people from seeing what was right in front of them. The message of salvation by humble faith. As it was taught in the Old Testament. His fellow Jews are blind, hard-hearted, closed in their minds. And yet, as we saw in verse 1, Paul keeps praying. (laughs) He keeps praying for them. Why? Because he knows that God has the power to open their minds, to lift the veil, to open their hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I know there is this willful, prideful ignorance that keeps people from believing. There's this satanic veil that keeps people from seeing the message of the scriptures. But he knows the God who can lift the veil because he knows the God who did it for him. He knows the God who opened his own eyes, who opened his own heart, who helped these things become clear for him. And so he keeps praying for his fellow Jews. 
So question four. What principles do we learn here? What principles do we learn here? And I'm simply going to mention two. Two principles. First, we learn here that our zeal must always be in accordance with scriptural knowledge. Our zeal must always be in accordance with scriptural knowledge. There is a very famous Jonathan Edwards quote that it pops up all over the commentaries when when working on this passage. Here's what Edwards, thinking about the preaching ministry, said about this subject. He said, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can provided that they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. So what does that mean? Edwards is saying that his goal in preaching was to help his hearers feel what they ought to feel and to have the passion that they ought to have, but always in proper connection with truth. So if Edwards was preaching a message on hell, as he did in his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, his goal was for his hearers to understand and feel something of the weight and the horrors of hell. If people hear a sermon on hell and don't leave with some sense of fear and trembling, the preacher has not done a good job. On the other hand, when Edwards preached sermons on heaven, as he did in a fantastic sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. His goal was for his hearers to have a sense of just how wonderful and joyous and amazing heaven is. If people can go home after a sermon on heaven and not long to be there, the preacher hasn't done a good job. So Edward said every Bible truth demands an emotional response. It demands a kind of passion, a zeal from us, but it must always be in connection with truth. And it's when our zeal gets away from truth that we fall into problems. It's when we don't have truth as the foundation of our passion for God and truth providing the the lines, the guide for our zeal that we run into problems. Joel Beakey says this, Zeal must come with the wisdom from above, which is pure, humble, and compassionate, or it will end in bitterness, disorder, and sin. Listen to this. Zeal is only as good as the doctrine and godliness which inspires it. Zeal is only as good as the doctrine and godliness which inspires it. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you have a passion for God beating in your chest this morning? Do you love Him? Do you long to serve Him? Examine yourself. Is there zeal for God in your life? Is your passion for God the preeminent zeal for your life? Is God your highest passion? Is God your reason for living? Does everything else you do and all of your callings fit under the umbrella of your passion for God and His glory? And if you don't have that zeal for God in your heart, then you need to fall on your face before God. And you need to ask Him to open your eyes to His goodness. Nothing else matters more than this. 
If you don't have real love for God beating in your chest, you don't know Him. There's nothing worse than being a lukewarm Christian because a lukewarm Christian it often proves to be an imposter Christian. A Christian in word and deed, but not in heart. So don't be that. If you're here as a lukewarm Christian, wake up, fan the flames of love for God in your heart. But then ask yourself, if you do have that passion for God in your heart, what are the Bible truths that are the source of that passion? What is the solid biblical foundation for the zeal that you have? Tonight, the love conference begins. We're going to spend three nights thinking about the doctrine of love. Is there anything that could be a more solid foundation for your passion for God than this? What in the world can be compared to the truth that God loves sinners? Another way to ask this question might be to ask this. What are the chief passions of your life And what happens when you run them through a biblical filter? What gets you excited? What gets your heart pumping? What drives you each day? Take those passions and run them through a biblical filter. Are you excited about the most important things? Or are you excited about trivial things? Are you zealous for things that really matter? Or are you zealous for things that don't really matter? And if you find that you are zealous about the things of God, is your zeal being used and directed in the right ways? How are you serving God? Are you serving Him His way? Or are you serving Him your way? Are you expressing your passion for God in obedience? Or could it be that you are expressing your passion for God in ways He's never called you to express them? Excuse me. This is where the doctrine of vocation is so important. In our day, we tend to equate zeal for God with a worship service. We tend to equate passion for God with revival meetings or even with conferences. Or perhaps we equate having zeal for God with missions and evangelism and people who sell everything they have to take the gospel to some other nation. And don't get me wrong, that kind of zeal can be good and right and biblical and wise. But real Christian zeal should show itself every day in the ordinary fulfillment of our callings. Zeal for God should show itself in what we do and especially in how we do it. There is a way to do laundry in happy, zealous obedience to God. There is a way to file your taxes in happy, zealous obedience to God, believe it or not. There is a way to interact with co-workers that reflects your passion for God. The Puritan John Preston said this. He said, if you will show that you love the Lord Jesus, then do the works that belong to your particular place, for every calling has a particular work in it. If you love the Lord, be diligent in that way, in that calling which Christ has given you to do 
to him service in, and herein you shall show your love. In other words, if you want to show your zeal for God, let it be shown first and foremost in the way you fulfill the callings he has given you. Yes, when we gather together on Sundays, we ought to sing boldly. And yes, we ought to be passionate about evangelistic activity. And we ought to be passionate about world missions. But let your passion for God show itself mainly in the way you treat your spouse or your parents or your children or your siblings. Let your passion for God show in the way you lead that community group or the way you respect your boss or the way you treat your employees. If you come here on Sunday and you lift up zealous, passionate worship for God, but on Monday through Saturday, you are living as if your God doesn't matter, your worship here is vain and offensive to God. But if your worship here on Sunday is the overflow and the capstone of a week of passion for God being shown through faithfulness and the callings God has given you, that is the best kind of worship, the kind of worship God loves. Jobiki says, zeal is not about excitement so much as it is about perseverance in doing good out of a steady love for God. Zeal is not so much about excitement as it is about perseverance in doing good out of a steady love for God. Let's make sure that our zeal is in accordance with knowledge. And then what is the second principle for us to learn? We learn here how essential it is that we depend on the Holy Spirit. Because who and who alone has the power to open up the eyes of Israelites and overcome that willful, satanic ignorance that gripped them? Only the Spirit of God. Who had the power to open up Paul's eyes and to bring that zealous Pharisee to Christ? Only the Spirit of God. Who has the power to help us understand the Bible and to rightly apply it so that we trust Jesus and direct our love for him in good and godly directions? It is the Spirit of God. The Christian life is a life of faith. So let us be constant in prayer, asking that Jesus will work through his Holy Spirit to open our eyes to his truth, to get us passionate about that truth, and then to Direct that passion in good and godly ways. Only by the power of God will we be able to be a biblically informed, zealous people for Christ. And so let us pray and let us depend upon the Spirit to do that in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.